Welcome to the introductory episode of Reformed, a podcast on the criminal justice system and criminal justice reform. Today, we'll be talking about a trend called mass incarceration. You might have heard a lot about this trend in the news and even from politicians. Thanks to the work of activist groups like Black Lives Matter, the popularity of documentaries like 13th, and the success of books like The New Jim Crow, public awareness about the existence of mass incarceration is at an all-time high. But if you're still asking yourself, what is mass incarceration, and how exactly did we end up here, then this podcast is for you. One way to think about mass incarceration is as an American experiment in incarceration, which is defined by comparatively and historically extreme rates of imprisonment, and by the concentration of imprisonment among young African-American men living in neighborhoods of concentrated disadvantage. That's the working definition used by Oxford bibliographies. While many researchers have identified this trend in American prisons, rising populations, especially in specific demographics and impoverished areas, Scholars don't agree on what actually causes mass incarceration and what mass incarceration means for our country. That's what we will be exploring in Reformed, the roots of mass incarceration, the stories of people affected by the system, and what's being done to solve it. To provide a little perspective, here's what Saquon R. Merritt, a justice reform advocate, entrepreneur, businessman, and formerly incarcerated person, had to say about his daily life experiences during incarceration. A typical day was very scheduled, very scheduled, controlled, and confined. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you, you woke up at um, around 4, 5 a.m. to get ready for, for breakfast. So, you know, they, they hit your doors. They give you uh, a couple of different, you know, warnings that you know, you know, you got 15 minutes to uh, breakfast smooth going out. Um, so you're eating breakfast at around 5 a.m., Mm-hmm. Um, after that, you come back and, you know, you lock in and get ready for shift change because shifts are pretty much 7 to 3, 3 to 11, and then 11 to um, eleven to 7. So, um, you know, once you once we get back from eating, it's around like, you know, 6, 6.30 maybe, mm-hmm. 6 o'clock. So, you know, you got to lock in and get ready for shift change. Um, after that, um, we wake up at about maybe 8, 8.39, 8.39 a.m., and that's the morning movement for recreation. Um, mm-hmm. You open up and go to either the yard to work out or you go on a rec hall. You go on a rec hall to maybe use the phone or uh, try to get in contact with your family. And that's for about an hour, hour and a half. Mm-hmm. So you're getting locking back in at 10 o'clock. Okay. So at 10 o'clock, you're getting ready for lunch. So we're eating lunch at 10, 10.30, 10 in the morning. So eating lunch at around 10.30, getting ready for that movement. And then uh, after that, that takes maybe about maybe about an hour, hour and a half to get all the units because it's a mass movement. So they move one building to the other. And uh, that, that ends at around 11, 11, 12. So then we're locking into about 1, mm-hmm. 1 o'clock. And then from 1 o'clock to about 2.30, that's afternoon recreation. Mm-hmm. Um, that recreation, and you're locking in at, uh, you're locking in at, at yeah, at two thirty, to get ready for a shift change, and then uh, the second shift, which mm-hmm. is three to eleven. 
Uh, after you lock in, then, then um, do a count, a mass mm-hmm. count. After every major movement, they do a count. Mm-hmm. So they lock everybody in, get a count ready. Both shifts do count, make sure everybody's where they're supposed to be at. And then um, after that shift change at 3 o'clock, we're getting ready for lunch, for dinner mm-hmm. at 4, 4.30. So you're eating dinner at 4.35 o'clock. And, you know, if you, you know, uh, if you don't have, you know, your family, you know, sending you commissary or anything, so you have that gap mm-hmm. from 5 o'clock to 5 in the next morning. So you're 12 hours. Yeah. The next time you eat. So, um, you know, guys, you know, we usually try to, you know, uh, get bread, you know, out the kitchen. We may not eat. We may try to get some bread out the kitchen and maybe, you know, make a snack or something like that or peanut butter and jelly for the night. And, um, you know, you you can get in trouble for that. So but the whole time, you you know, you're human. You're going 12 hours without eating. You're just trying to feed yourself. But, um, you know, from then um, after after that, after dinner. Then it's pretty much a night wreck. That's pretty much the longest, longest recreation period. And, um, you know, they usually finish chow maybe about 6.30, come out at 6.30, and from 6.30 to about 8.30 or 9, depending on, you know, if we went on lockdown. And then get ready, lock in at 9, and get ready for the, the next day. And said, like I said, it's very controlled. To start off, let's look at the numbers that make scholars think that America has a prison problem. There are more than 2.3 million incarcerated people in America today. They're held in a variety of places, over 1,700 state prisons, more than 100 federal prisons, over 900 juvenile correctional facilities, as well as thousands of local jails, a number of military prisons, immigration detention facilities, and even some prisons in U.S. territories. Some of these incarcerated people have been convicted of crimes, but others haven't. In fact, almost half a million people in the American criminal justice system haven't been found guilty of any crime. Many are held prior to trial because they can't post bail, or because the court believes that they pose a safety threat. Although the average stay pre-trial is only 21 days, some people spend months in prison before they're brought to trial. A young man named Khalif Browder famously spent three years on Rikers Island before his case was heard. Incarcerated Americans are charged with a variety of offenses ranging from violence to drug abuse, fraud to robbery. Putting all these differences aside, America incarcerates a greater number of people than any other country in the world. But we're also one of the largest countries in the world population-wise. Maybe you're skeptical about the idea of mass incarceration. You might be thinking that our prison population is high, but our imprisonment rate, the number of incarcerated people per capita, could be similar to other countries. When adjusting for national population, though, America's prison rates aren't much better. According to the World Prison Brief, the incarceration rate in 2016 was 666 people incarcerated per 100,000 people in the U.S. There's only one country in the world with a higher prison population rate, the Seychelles. There, citizens are incarcerated at a rate of 738 people per 100,000. For context, the global median imprisonment rate is around 142 people incarcerated for every 100,000 citizens. These numbers are staggering. America's imprisonment rate isn't just higher than the average countries, it's truly massive in comparison to the rest of the world. 
Here's what Joshua Miller, director of education at Georgetown University's Prisons and Justice Initiative, had to say to me about the issue. The United States has 5% of the world's population and 25% of its prisoners, but we don't have a crime rate that justifies having that many people in prison. Um, We're weird. We're number one at something we shouldn't be number one at. This trend is surprisingly new. The United States hasn't always been imprisoning people at such a drastically high rate. While the prison population remained steady for most of the 20th century, in the 1970s, incarceration rates started to skyrocket. According to a report published by the National Research Council, the rate of imprisonment in the United States more than quadrupled over the last four decades. In the same period, the population only increased by about 50%. We'll discuss some of the reasons that led to this prison population spike during our next episode. Some people argue that increased incarceration is actually a good thing. If more people are in prison, there should be fewer people committing crimes in the population at large. Crime rates should go down in response to law enforcement and penalties. In fact, it was this kind of thinking that led people to adopt many of the harsh criminal justice policies that we still have today. After World War II, a rise in crime rates combined with the perception that protest movements were creating instability and unrest in America led legislatures and governments across the country to adopt many of the policies that inform our approach to crime today. The public supported and embraced these law and order politics that emphasized punitive responses to lawbreaking in hopes that they would improve quality of life and personal security. The pressure on public officials to support tough-on-crime initiatives still exists today. For a recent example of tough-on-crime rhetoric, just listen to this clip from the famous Willie Horton ad. George H.W. Bush ran this ad in his campaign against Michael Dukakis, and many political scientists and commentators consider this ad absolutely destructive to Michael Dukakis's campaign. Bush and Dukakis on crime. Bush supports the death penalty for first-degree murderers. Dukakis not only opposes the death penalty, he allowed first-degree murderers to have weekend passes from prison. One was Willie Horton, who murdered a boy in a robbery, stabbing him 19 times. Despite a life sentence, Horton received 10 weekend passes from prison. Horton fled, kidnapped a young couple, stabbing the man and repeatedly raping his girlfriend. Weekend prison passes. Dukakis on crime. While this kind of rhetoric played well with the general public and stirred up widespread fear across America, if you look into the background of tough-on-crime politics, there isn't much substance to back up a lot of the claims that tough-on-crime officials make. National Research Council reports on prisons found that long prison sentences have minimal impact on crime prevention. During that same four decades from the 1970s to the 2010s, incarceration rates rose steadily, but the crime rate fluctuated. In other words, there doesn't seem to be any clear relationship between increasingly long sentence lengths, the number of people incarcerated, and actual public safety. In fact, the National Research Council's committee chair, Jeremy Davis, said that the council was concerned that the United States is past the point where the number of people in prison can be justified by social benefits. The perception that incarceration leads to lower crime rates just doesn't hold up. We're locking up millions of American citizens, but it doesn't seem to be making America any safer. 
In fact, the Brennan Center, a criminal justice research group, actually found that many American states that decrease their incarceration rates decrease their crime rates at the exact same time. From 2006 to 2016, 27 states lowered their crime rates and their incarceration rates simultaneously. During that same time period, the national incarceration rate fell by 7% and the crime rate fell by 23%. It's possible to lower the numbers of people that we have in prison, lower the rate at which we incarcerate people, and reduce the crime rate all at the same time. These numbers suggest that we could bring our incarceration rate down without risking public safety. The argument that many politicians and individuals give in favor of increased prison populations, the argument that investments in prisons and incarceration protects Americans and increased public safety, just doesn't hold up to closer scrutiny. As it turns out, this problem isn't just limited to America. Around the same time that the United States saw its prison population rise, other countries around the world also saw huge increases in their own incarceration rates. These increases were concentrated in Western countries. In Europe, the prison population rose by over 20%. Imprisonment in Australia and New Zealand also increased, and all the six largest countries in the Americas saw comparable growth. Some criminologists think that this shift reflects a global change in attitudes towards crime, where policymakers and governments believe that putting offenders in prison is better than any alternative. In that case, the Western world seems to be a place where imprisonment has become the default. We incarcerate because it's politically advantageous and because it seems to be the only option. In the span of a few decades, policymakers and institutions across the country created a new system within America a behemoth that affects millions of our citizens each day. For a nation that claims to be the land of the free, we imprison our citizens more than almost any other country on earth. I spoke to Mark Howard, professor of government at Georgetown University and director of their Prisons and Justice Initiative, to gain some of his perspectives on working with incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people. Here's what he had to say about mass incarceration. Prisons are filled with real people, with human beings who, like all of us, are flawed and have made mistakes, but who desperately want to have a productive life as a contributing member of society. I think there's a tendency for people outside to just think that criminals want to be criminals and they want to do bad things and they want to harm people. And having interacted extensively with a lot of people who have done bad things, I've come to understand that it's very, very different that they don't want to be what they once were. They want to change. And so for me, it's a message of human, first of all, humanity, that they're real people. These aren't statistics. These aren't monsters and evil people. These are human beings. And they want to change and they want to transform. And Given that 95% of people in prison are going to come home one day, don't we have an obligation to them, to ourselves, to all of us, to our society, 
to help make them better people. And I think it's possible and I feel like I've been doing it and I've seen it with my own eyes and I just wish more people could, could see it, could experience it. When I bring my Georgetown students into prison, and I know you've been in a number of times, they're blown away by the people that they see in there. And they say, this isn't at all what I expected. I you know, expected scary, you know, mean, nasty people, evil people. And it blows them away. It changes their whole worldview, it changes their lives, many of them. And I just wish I could take everybody inside a prison. I feel like if everybody could come into prison, they would walk out with a totally different view about criminal justice, about prisons, about humanity, and one that would be much more supportive of people. I also had the chance to speak with Marcus Lilly, a college student, community outreach coordinator for nonprofit coalition of friends, mentor, public speaker, formerly incarcerated person, and self-described advocate for transformation about his typical day during his incarceration. I'd like to share that story with you now. Well, I would, I, I would get up early in the morning and try to have a moment to meditate um, or pray to kind of think my day over, see, um, recap what I need to do, and kind of just stay in the moment, stay focused so I would be aware of my surroundings because you know, from my experience, I learned that if you you don't really get that moment to yourself, sometimes you can find yourself in trouble because the environment you become a you 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 can become conditioned by your environment instead of you know having your environment be conditioned by you. Uh, I heard a phrase. I think it say, "Don't be the." Uh, I'm gonna mess the phrase up. It's, it's, don't be the um, something like the don't be the temperature, be the thermometer or something. Yeah, like you know, you try to don't be a product of your environment. Make your environment a product of yourself. So, like, I always used to take those moments to just remember that I don't have to, I don't have to be an inmate. I don't have to be a prisoner. I can use this day, use my time wisely. I don't have to waste time here. So I would take that moment and um, if I had studying to do for the college program or just um, because I was a mentor in three different programs, if I had to go over a study guide or do some college work or just read in general, I would read first, then I would go work out. And by the time that's over with, uh, it would be lunchtime. I would go to lunch. And when we come back from lunch, I would stay in, I stayed in a cell a lot because uh, for me, the day room. The day room that Marcus is talking about here is a common recreation space in a prison where lots of different people in the facility can get together and spend their downtime. Um, it's a lot of ignorance in the day room. And, and, and some, some, some tears is not, majority of the tears it is. So I would just stay in my cell and read. Um, but whenever I did go in the day room, it would be to use the phone to try to contact my family. And I would sit in the corner by myself and read. And 
Then we would get locked in after wreck. It would be like toward uh, maybe three o'clock. They would do shift change. So the correctional officers would come past and count you while you were in a cell. And normally, because I was in so many programs, right after shift change, I would go to a program where I would go to school. And that's maybe three, four hours and I'm gone. When I come back, I would uh, either finish reading or get on the phone or I would get in the shower. And that's pretty much my day. I just stay programming and stay reading. That was my form of escaping, um, you know, kind of escaping reality that I was locked up. That's the end of part one of our first episode, but we aren't done here. Do you think that mass incarceration only has a negative impact on the people who commit crimes? Tune in to part two of our introductory episode to hear more about the development of mass incarceration on the international stage and how mass incarceration affects families. Also, listen in to learn more about the state of criminal justice reform under current government administrations.